On Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the Emir of Al-Qaeda, Iman al-Zawiri. On July 31st, a U.S. drone strike killed the leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Zawahiri had been elevated to lead the violent extremist organization in 2011 after the killing of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. He had a $25 million bounty on his head, and since the start of the U.S.-led war on terror, Zawahiri had spent much of his life in hiding. After relentlessly seeking Zawahiri for years under Presidents Bush, Obama and Trump, our intelligence community located Zawahiri earlier this year. He had moved to downtown Kabul to reunite with members of his immediate family. After carefully considering the clear and convincing evidence of his location, I authorized a precision strike that would remove him from the battlefield once and for all. With the head of al-Qaeda and bin Laden's successor dead, what's next for the terrorist organization? How has over 20 years of the war on terror forced the group to change? And who will move into the top seat? My name is Hugo Goodridge. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. I mean, it's obviously very significant, and we cannot overstate the significance of every such leadership decapitation campaign undertaken against a major terrorist groups like al-Qaeda. This is Javed Ahmed. Javed is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's South Asia Centre. But we must also understand that with groups like al-Qaeda, the killing of al-Zawahiri is merely a disruption in al-Qaeda's overall activities. And I think al-Qaeda will quickly overcome this very important disruption, mainly because as the vanguard or the de facto, you know, the Walmart of global jihadism, they, they have increasingly learned to become a very patient and a very adaptive as an organization. Ayman al-Zawahiri was born in Egypt in 1951 to a prosperous family. He completed a medical degree and opened a clinic in a leafy suburb to the south of Cairo. Simultaneously, Zawahiri was also becoming ever deeper involved in the efforts of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad to overthrow the Egyptian government and establish an Islamic state. Between 1981 and 1984, he was jailed in Egypt for his role in the assassination of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. And in 1991, while based in Peshawar, Pakistan, he was named as the leader of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. While in Pakistan, Zawahiri made contact with Osama bin Laden. Over the next decade, Zawahiri would continue leading the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, taking responsibility for numerous deadly bombing attacks around the world. And in June 2001, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Al-Qaeda formally merged, and Zawahiri became number two to bin Laden, and was often described as being the brains of the operation. Following his ascension to the top of al-Qaeda on May 2nd, 2011, Zawahiri took command of an organisation that had been severely impacted and depleted by counter-terrorism efforts, but remained ever dangerous. Javid again. While it's very important, I don't always see the effectiveness or the operational effectiveness of a terrorist group's 
uh, like Al-Qaeda in its numbers, including how big that number is or how small that number is or how dispersed that number is. These groups have established their relevance and have developed a remarkable ability to regenerate forces and regenerate capabilities for operations in a very short period of time. So to me, it's about how effectively Al-Qaeda and its franchises are connected, uh, as well as how connected Al-Qaeda and its franchises remain in their institutional and intersectional partnerships in different countries. Since the start of the war on terror, Al-Qaeda has changed from a singular international terrorist organization into a collection of groups, each fighting on their own fronts against varying enemies under the umbrella of Al-Qaeda. Javid views the group as an octopus, Zawahiri at the head and the tentacles connecting to the group's various regional branches. Each of those franchises or regional branches bring to the table very different level and very different types of operational capabilities and priorities. And and so we should look at this growing octopus as a whole and then assess Al-Qaeda's overall operational capabilities to determine has this arrangement uh, or this compact that Al-Qaeda has with its branches, but also Al-Qaeda has with their other institutional and intersectional ideological siblings, grown Al-Qaeda's longer-term tactical staying power and I think the short answer is obviously yes. And that is, you know, in my view, the most important capability. The shift from a centralised organisation to more of a franchise model has ensured the group's survival and also helped growth. But this shift was less of a choice and more of a necessity because of the US-led war on terror. The one successful element of it was that we were successful in putting al-Qaeda's central leadership under an enormous amount of pressure. This is Charles Lister, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and the director of the Counterterrorism and Syria programmes. We really constrained their ability to command any meaningful extent of control over the global al-Qaeda movement and the network of affiliates. And I think in that sense, affiliates in and of themselves had no choice but to begin to make more of their own decisions uh, and to adapt and orient their agendas much more towards the local dynamics within which they existed. And there was a period of time immediately after the Arab Spring where Al-Qaeda's central leadership uh, unquestionably embraced that more local approach. I think they saw it as an opportunity. But during this period of independency, free from the direct overwatch of jihadi head office, these affiliates began to drift away from the ultimate al-Qaeda goal and paid more attention to their immediate local issues, something that Zawahiri, during his time at the top, sought to put an end to. But what was interesting is that by that point, and that was probably around 2015 or so, the al-Qaeda affiliates around the world who had embraced this local approach, I think had realised that that approach had a far greater prospect for success for their own specific agendas than having a more globally oriented or a quote-unquote global uh, approach. And so by and large, they actually basically ignored Zawahari's instructions to revert back um, to that that original uh, agenda. And I think that spoke volumes about Zawahari's not necessarily leadership style. I think to an extent it almost didn't matter what his leadership style was but his capacity to recommand or reassert command over the affiliates who had found a more effective way of operating. 
In the Middle East and North Africa, there are a number of branches of Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda affiliates. But the main ones are Al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula, or AQAP, and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, or AQIM. The first of these, AQAP, has been heavily engaged in fighting in Yemen, while the latter, AQIM, is occupied by an insurgency campaign across North Africa. Both of these groups have earned their bloody credentials as terrorist organisations. But in terms of growth, it is the sub-Saharan region that is stretching ahead. According to Charles, the breakup of Al-Qaeda is a welcome development for those engaged in counter-terrorism efforts. From a US policy perspective, that decentralization of Al-Qaeda is a good thing. I would challenge whether or not that assessment is right. I actually think it is more dangerous that Al-Qaeda has decentralized and affiliates have become more locally oriented. But so far as we hear from US policymakers, the decentralization of the movement uh, is actually a good thing because AQ is not as focused on attacking the far enemy on conducting a 9-11-style attack as it was 20 years ago. While Zawahiri might have failed during his tenure to hold al-Qaeda together as a unified group, this does not mean that the threat posed by the group has dissipated. Javed Ahmed. How I see it is that al-Qaeda's comparative advantage is that as the vanguard of modern-day jihadism, they still enjoy greater legitimacy and appeal because of their narrative. And of course, despite important setbacks like the killing of Azawahiri, Al-Qaeda still project globally, but you know they mostly act locally. They still look West because that's how they have historically acquired and maintained their jihadi legitimacy. And that's how they also tactically remain relevant. Uh, but they also increasingly act East or act regional because, because they have limited external operational or material capabilities to reach faraway places like the West. Of all of al-Qaeda's relationships, it is their ties with the Taliban that have come under the most scrutiny. It was the presence of al-Qaeda bases and training facilities in Afghanistan that prompted the initial US invasion of Afghanistan post 9-11 and saw the Taliban removed from power. Upon the Taliban's return, the issue of the presence of al-Qaeda in the country was a crucial part of the deal. The circumstances surrounding the recent US drone strike that killed the al-Qaeda leader should illuminate to you how well that's going. Well, first off, I think it's kind of staggering. He felt comfortable enough to return to Kabul. And I say return, he was... Zawahiri and his family lived in the exact same neighborhood of Kabul before 9-11. So he was literally coming home. It's absolutely staggering that he felt confident enough to do that. It's remarkable that at least if you listen to anonymous sources and comments from the intelligence community, that he felt comfortable enough to sit out in public on his balcony in the mornings to watch the sun come up and read a book is in and of itself absolutely staggering. Indeed. When he was killed, the head of Al-Qaeda, a man with a $25 million bounty on his head, one of, if not the most wanted terrorist in the world, was living relatively openly in the Afghan capital. But why would the Taliban have him there? What's keeping the Taliban and Al-Qaeda together? Al-Qaeda maintains a very deep faith in their historical, ideological, institutional, and also family partnerships with groups like the Taliban. 
and their governing partners like the Haqqani Network. A brief tangent into Afghan politics. The Haqqani Network is built around an Afghan family of the same name. The network was founded in the 1970s and was one of those who fought against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s. During this time, they formed close ties with Osama bin Laden. They pledged allegiance to the Taliban in 1995 and since then have become a large and integral part of the Taliban. Today, Sirajuddin Haqqani, the group's leader and son of the founder, is the Afghan interior minister, controlling much of the internal security forces of the country. There is also a $10 million reward for his capture being offered by the FBI. Back to Javed. Um, And it's important to contextualize this because the comfort level between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban is mutual, uh, mainly because it is a multi-layer partnership. The Taliban leaders today are faced with a very risky proposition where should they attempt to make it uncomfortable for Al-Qaeda leaders and Al-Qaeda fighters inside Afghanistan, then they may well affect the Taliban's own senior leaders in rank and file who are in bed with Al-Qaeda and who have shared long and bloody battles with Al-Qaeda fighters, or they married uh, them or uh, amongst themselves. So I take it that breaking up is not an easy proposition for the Taliban to just simply, you know, get up, say, I'm going to abandon Al-Qaeda by citing ideological or uh, or other reasons that, including the reasons that they want to govern Afghanistan, a peaceful or terror-free Afghanistan. The bond between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda is secured in history, a bond which today powerful elements within the Taliban, like the Haqqani network, feel compelled to maintain. When al-Qaeda first came to Afghanistan, they were protected by the Taliban and other Afghan groups as guests. But the Taliban are now characterizing and treating al-Qaeda inside Afghanistan as refugees. I mean, they call them muhajirin. So, you know, this gets into the heart of this codependent partnerships, which have inspired other jihadist uh, groups around the world to replicate this kind of guest refugee model. And al-Qaeda feels safe in places like Afghanistan today. Uh, because they have this you know, deep faith in the patronage and hospitality service of their local hosts. Uh, and of course, at times it comes with its own challenges or setbacks, like seen uh, in the Kabul strike. Now I know what you're thinking. Doesn't the presence of al-Qaeda in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan directly contradict the joint declaration between the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and the United States of America for bringing peace to Afghanistan, which paved the way for the Taliban's return? Do historic ties take precedent over everything else? Do agreements signed with the US mean nothing to the Taliban? Charles? So I think that's why the Taliban has found itself in the place that it has, in a place where the more politically pragmatic wing was willing to say to the West that they wouldn't provide a safe haven to al-Qaeda and its desire to plot attacks abroad. But as the Taliban has frequently pointed out in its kind of propaganda outfits over the last several months, they did not sign up to prevent al-Qaeda from being in Afghanistan. They signed up to prevent al-Qaeda from being in Afghanistan and plotting attacks abroad. And so there's this weird kind of gray area where clearly from a Western CT perspective, we don't want AQ in Afghanistan full stop. And the Taliban are suddenly seeing things through a slightly different lens. And again, I think that speaks volumes about the kind of internal contradictions within the Taliban itself. As I say, I have no doubt that there is a politically pragmatic wing that would probably, they'll never say so, 
but probably wish that AQ just um, went away and were no longer this kind of contradictory problem that the Taliban has to deal with. But that's not going to be the case. Okay, so the Taliban won't break ties with al-Qaeda. What are the West's options? From a Western policy perspective, we're caught in this very double-edged sword situation whereby we also know a fundamental rule of sort of countering extremism and violent extremism is that the longer that a country or a region is mired by instability and poverty and a sort of lack of any kind of good future, the more likely it is that extremism and violent extremism will thrive. So in that sense, we have an interest in trying to sort of support and buttress the Afghan economy and to provide humanitarian aid. But also, from a security perspective, we have either no interest or very little interest in doing that and supporting a government that is wholly essentially run by the Taliban, and particularly a wing of the Taliban, which is openly supportive in one way or another of the of Al-Qaeda. So I, I don't know how we square that circle. We were always going to find ourselves in the situation. It was one of the reasons why those of us who were, were shouting from the rooftops a year ago about how fundamentally challenging this was going to be for a Western policy perspective. So it's a, it's a very, very challenging situation. The US continues to lead the fight against terrorism and global jihadism. And the resolve remains, as shown by the recent strike that killed Ayman al-Zawahiri. In the days after the drone strike, US National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby spoke to reporters. Ask some members of al-Qaeda, ask them how, how safe they feel in Afghanistan right now. Um, I think we proved uh, to a fair thee well this weekend that it isn't a safe haven and it isn't going to be going forward. This action demonstrates that without American forces on the ground in Afghanistan and in harm's way, we still remain able to identify and locate even the world's most wanted terrorist and then take the action to remove him from the battlefield. You know, it's one thing to have found the most wanted terrorist in the world on Afghan soil. That's a 20-year mission that the intelligence community has been devoted to. It is a whole nother challenge to detect a small cell of mid-level operatives who may or may not be plotting an attack from Afghan soil. That is not something, I think, that the killing of Zawahiri proves that we're capable of doing. When the Biden administration says, here's the proof in the pudding, we can, we've shown we can do over the horizon, you know, Americans have nothing to worry about from Afghanistan, uh, I don't think that's the whole truth. And I think we've got a lot more legwork to do in terms of local basing for drones, in terms of reawakening those human intelligence networks, if we are to be in a position to detect and to stop that kind of al-Qaeda operations. With even a modicum of safety provided by the Taliban, al-Qaeda will continue to pose a threat, certainly regionally and potentially beyond. Which brings us to our final question. Who will replace Ayman al-Zawahiri? Like any big corporation or global organization, groups like al-Qaeda have contingencies, uh, including with respect to leadership succession. And I would posit that succession plans were perhaps long debated within al-Qaeda's senior ranks while al-Zawahiri was still alive. Despite the growth of al-Qaeda in the sub-Saharan region, Charles believes that the next leader will more than likely come from an Arab background. Al-Qaeda at its core is still or at least its central leadership, is still and has still been a very kind of traditional 
structure, traditional uh, agenda, traditional outlook. And I I emphasize that in the sense that historically speaking, Al-Qaeda has been an Arab-led movement. And throughout the history of Al-Qaeda, internal accounts have often essentially shown Al-Qaeda to have been, I don't know, slightly racist in terms of the way that it looks at who has the most credibility within the jihadist world and who has less credibility. The bookie's favourite to replace Zawahiri is currently Saif al-Adil. His exact whereabouts are unknown, but he is believed to be in Iran. He was first hosted by the Iranian regime as a guest, but he later became a hostage. He is among al-Qaeda's top principals. Uh, I think it was al-Qaeda number three. Um, And like Zawahiri, he's also from Egypt. He's a big picture guy in his early 60s. He's charismatic. He's reportedly a thinker. They have a strong battlefield experience who previously served as a special forces in the Egyptian army in 1980s. And then he later trained as an explosive expert. Like he does have you know, a special relationship with Al-Qaeda's lieutenants elsewhere, including those in the Al-Qaeda uh, regional branch and Islamic Maghreb, um, AQIM, but also Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQIP. Saif is said to be not particularly good at, uh, you know, managing those relationships within Al-Qaeda senior ranks in particular. So, I, But I think, um, you know, his ultimate elevation to assuming the role of uh, Al-Qaeda mayor would mean that Al-Qaeda's uh, Shura Council, um, uh, including those from their affiliate groups all over the world, uh, will have to endorse him. Saif al-Adil could be a safe pair of hands for a murderous jihadist organisation. But being in Iran is a mark against him. Uh, beyond this, I think one other possible candidate for Al-Qaeda's leadership is this guy named Khaled Betarfi. Uh, Khaled, at the moment, is leading AQAP in Yemen. He's been leading that organization since February of 2020, I believe, in, in AQAP is perhaps Al-Qaeda's most significant regional branch. Khaled comes from Saudi Arabia. He's a very experienced uh, Al-Qaeda lieutenant. He's relatively young, around 42, 43 year old. Khaled has also led AQAP's media wing, um, and he has served on AQAP's Shura Council, the ruling Shura Council, uh, which is significant. Um, he's a, a skilled communicator. He reportedly enjoys very strong links with other Al Qaeda's franchises. He's well regarded because of his field craft. Khaled could take that step up. A few other names have been batted around. There's Ahmed Duriye current leader of al-Shabaab in Somalia, Yazid Mubarak, current leader of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and Abdul al-Rahman al-Maghrabi, the son-in-law of the former leader and the former director of al-Qaeda's media wing, also currently believed to be in Iran. It is thought that there are concerns that elevating a leader from a regional group could see that group favoured by the new leader, igniting a culture war within the organisation. Final words to Javed. Whoever makes it to the top poll, which Al-Qaeda may likely announce around or after October or November, I suspect, the overall focus should not only be on who makes it to the as a consensus candidate to the top poll, but also who will make it to the Amir's uh, inner circle, including who's going to be his deputy or his deputies. Uh, but beyond this, I think uh, Al-Qaeda's franchises will become more powerful um, and, and independent 
mainly because the new leadership will come from Al Qaeda's new generation of fighters. Uh, we may see some um, or more diversification in Al Qaeda's partnerships, uh, perhaps more tactical partnerships and alliances, including with South Asian groups and unaffiliated fighters. Um, and I think all of this will naturally and materially boost Al Qaeda's longer term tactical staying power. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. Music